Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am pleased to say that today we are joined by Michael Morell, former acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency, former deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, a career um, leader at the Central Intelligence Agency, and currently both a senior counselor and global chairman of geopolitical risk practice at Beacon Global Strategies, and the host of a really good podcast called Intelligence Matters. If you listen to Deep State Radio, you will want to also give a listen to Intelligence Matters. Welcome, Michael. David, it is great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, it, it, is, it is our pleasure. We have, over the course of the past several months, uh, uh, and specifically um, with some focus in the past several weeks, been having conversations with former senior colleagues of yours um, about where we are with the intelligence community and where we are likely to go in the months uh, ahead. Uh, We most recently had a conversation with uh, Jim Clapper. We talked to John McLaughlin a couple weeks ago as well. Um, And I would say the tenor of those conversations was was one of concern, um, both because of the unusual tension between the White House and the intelligence community, and because of the resistance within the administration more broadly to addressing or even acknowledging some of the more significant uh, threats that we face or are likely to face, ranging from uh, uh, the the threat of interference in the next uh, election cycle, um, which Um, Jim Clapper talked about coming not just from the Russians, perhaps this time, but the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, and others, Uh, but also other threats, including um, threats from geopolitical rivals and from terror groups that are not as quiescent as, you know, the press releases out out of political end of our government seem to be making them. So that's that that's the framing. I'm wondering if if you might want to start by saying what's your view in this regard so very 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 good question um and i think you know in my mind they're they're separate but related so let me let me take them one at a time um the first is the relationship between the president and his intelligence community um, as you know, he has said a number of times things that raise questions about um, 
his view of intelligence, his view of the competence of intelligence, his view about the usefulness of intelligence, um, his view about uh, the fact that intelligence was politicized uh, during the Obama administration. So he's, you know, he's, he's, he's had, as you've noted, this uneasy relationship um, with the IC. Um, here's, the, here's the main impact I think it's had. Um, I think it's extraordinarily important in a democracy for the leaders of the intelligence community to be out speaking publicly, to be giving interviews to journalists, uh, to be going to universities and giving talks and answering questions, to be going to think tanks and doing the same, to be out there and being seen and being as transparent as you can possibly be. Why is that important? Because these are secret organizations operating in a democracy, and it's extraordinarily important that the American people have confidence that the intelligence community is focusing on the right things, is um, being effective, is acting consistent with the Constitution and American law and um, with, with, with American values. So, so that being out there is important. And I think one of the consequences of the president's actions and the president's words is that the leaders of our community don't want to don't want to do that anymore. Um, in fact, if you look, they've been extraordinarily quiet. They have kept their heads down. Um, I think Gina Haspel, the director of CIA, has done two public events in her entire time um, as CIA director. Um, and why why do they want to keep their heads down? They want to keep their heads down because um, they're concerned that when they get asked a question about are the Iranians living up to um, the nuclear deal? Um, are the n- North Koreans ever going to give up their nuclear weapons? Um, they get put in a bind. And that bind is if they answer the question the way the, way the president wants them to answer it, then they're going to lose the confidence of their buildings and their organizations and if they answer it the right way, which is the way their organizations think about these issues, then they're going to make their boss mad. Um, and he's going to attack them um, personally and probably publicly. So they've chosen to go dark. And I think that um, is not healthy for the American intelligence community. So I think that's, that's that issue. Um, we, can talk about, we can talk about what we're looking for in the next DNI and, and, and all of that if you want, but I think that's the fundamental cost of the, the way the president has dealt with the intelligence community. On the, on the issue of threats, David, um, I think this is the most difficult challenging time in national security foreign policy since the Second World War. I think we face incredibly difficult challenges and some very serious threats. Um, And they range from the rise of China and what should we do about that to um, the resurgence of Russia and what we should do about that to North Korea, to Iran to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction more broadly, to what you mentioned as the continuing threat from jihadist extremists, to climate change. Um, I could go on and on and on. I, I don't think there's been a time in American history when 
the list of threats and challenges facing our country has been as long as it is today. And for the most part, not completely, but for for the most part, um, this administration has chosen an isolationist approach. We've chosen not to deal with issues. Um, And I think that makes the world more dangerous. um, And it increases the chances that down the road, we're going to have to get involved in the and and the price is going to be much higher. You know, the fundamental lesson, as you know, David, the fundamental lesson of World War II is um, you pay now or you pay later. And if you decide to pay later, you're going to pay much, much, much more. And I think we're at another moment in history like that, where we're, we're, we're either going to continue to lead in the world and engage in the world and make the world a safer place for us and our allies, or we're not. And... Um, we're going to end up facing even bigger threats down the down the road. There's a lot to pick up on there. I think I want to pick up at the with the the last set of issues um, because this is something we've been discussing a lot. Um, and I think um, my I I agree with you. I I think we face an array of challenges today that um, are unrivaled, certainly in the the course of the 30 odd years that I've been doing this, um, and you you listed a number of them, but I think you may have understated it. And let me so let me so let me challenge it a bit, and that is that it's not that we are being isolationist. Um, we are are in issue after issue that you've mentioned, exacerbating the problem, whether it's climate change and. <clears throat> are making decisions to um, pull back on environmental regulations or get out of the Paris Accords uh, or uh, issues like proliferation where we're stepping out of the INF Treaty or we step out of JCPOA um, or we enter into discussions with North Korea where um, ego supplants national interest as the driver in our negotiations um, and placating and playing to and being played by um, a, uh, a, a despotic foreign leader um, seems to be what's driving that discussion. Um, we have sent a message to a host of uh, authoritarians that we no longer care about issues of human rights and that we, in fact, um, uh, have given them a kind of a green light, whether it's Xi Jinping in Hong Kong or it's MBS and Khashoggi or it's um, uh, Vladimir Putin on an ongoing basis. Um, the president exacerbated the dangerous situation between India and Pakistan and Kashmir um, with a lie, a foolish statement that triggered uh, a bad response. Um, the president has encouraged um, Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil um, in ways that have both led to the weakening of democracy there, but also um, the devastation of the Amazon um, to, 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 a near, to a critical point. I, I could go on, but the point is we, throughout this history that you described since the Second World War, before the Second World War, um, played an, a, a role of actively counteracting uh, threats 
in, in, in the current situation, we are either retreating behind the wall or we're making it worse. Um, now, you may disagree with me, but I, I, I'd, I'd be interested in your response. So I think I don't disagree with what you just said. I think um, you'd have to take it almost issue by issue, right? There's those those issues where we have made a decision that we're going to withdraw from the world. Um, we're going we're gonna to withdraw from an issue and we're not going to take it on. Um, and then there's those issues where I think we have made it worse. And Iran is, you know, Iran is the perfect example of that. Um, so I think you'd really have to take it issue by issue. Um, I do think it's important, though, David, to to point out that that this tendency to retreat from the world is not just of the Trump administration, that this started earlier. Um, you know, I think we 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 could have taken more risk, for example, in Syria in 2000, um, in the fall of 2012 than we took in 2013. Um, and we chose not to do that. Um, President Obama not backing up the red line in Syria, you know, is another example of that. So um, I think this this tendency to retreat a little bit um, from the world goes goes back further than this president. And it's really a reflection of the politics here at home. And, um, you know, I travel across the country and um, I get a lot of people saying to me, you know, we need to solve our own problems here. Why should we be solving problems overseas? You know, Michael, what difference does it make to us what Vladimir Putin does in Ukraine? What difference does it make to us what the Chinese do in the South China Sea? Um, so I do think there's there, this this tendency to retreat is long term. I think President Trump has accelerated that. And then I would agree on top of it, he has made he has made some specific issues and specific uh, challenges um, more difficult than they would have been otherwise. I agree completely with you. Um, so let's let's um, talk about a couple of these things. Um, uh, you we've you, talked at the beginning about the relationship between the White House and the intelligence community, uh, and the reluctance of intelligence community leaders to be out and to be vocal. And I think. Uh, some might argue that uh, Dan Coats paid a price for periodically being vocal, speaking truth to power as he should, and um, and that's one of the reasons that he was replaced. Um, but of course, that's not just an issue of bureaucratic tension. It's an issue that has implications in terms of some of these issues we're talking about. And so let me give you two that are related. One is um, uh, the, 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 the fact that it seems likely that the Russians will intervene again in the 2020 elections. Uh, the United States Congress has made the decision not to fund um, um, the, the, the kind of things that might help protect us from that. But the administration has also essentially sent a message out, which is don't bring this up, don't talk about it. The president feels it's a threat to his legitimacy and, in fact, has chilled it even more so um, because, as it pertains to the 2016 election, 
the, 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 the president has sicked his attorney general on the intelligence community and said, I want you to investigate why they were even looking into the ties between Russia and, and, and the Trump campaign. Um, and so you, you end up with this chilling effect um, at precisely a moment where we run uh, you know, great risk of fundamental operation of democracy being tempered with. And I'm wondering, you know, am I, am I overstating that? Do you think that I, I'm, I'm, I'm overstating the risk associated with 2020? Um, uh, do you think that when we talked to uh, Jim Clapper, he was overstating it when he talked about China, uh, Iran, North Korea, others possibly intervening uh, in in those elections? Um, this is an area where there's a practical consequence to this chill, and I'm wondering what your outlook is. So I, I worry significantly about this. Um, absolutely, you know, the Russians interfered in American democracy um, in 2016 um, in a very significant way, and they haven't stopped. Um, it's continued to this very day. And um, I'm sure, I'm certain, um, 99% certain that they will ramp it up um, as we get closer to 2020. And I think that Jim Clapper's absolutely right. Um, Dan Coates said it publicly that others have learned from the Russians that you can actually weaken America by doing what the Russians did and that others are following suit and actually playing playing in this arena now too. And, and Dan, um, in the worldwide threat testimony last, last January, February said it was China, um, Iran, North Korea and others. I thought the, and others was very interesting because, you know, as you know, David, when analysts write words, uh, they write them with purpose. So it means there's others out there and I wonder who those others are. And I wonder if some of them may be some of our own allies, some of our own partners, um, who might be uh, 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 trying to use some of these tools against us. Um, but what, what, what the Russians did weakened us as a nation, um, and them, them continuing to do it is going to weaken us even further as a nation, and now they're being joined by others. And we as, we as a government, in my view, have not responded properly. There are two things that I think we needed to do that we still have not done. Um, one is to do everything we can to defend ourselves. One is to do everything we can to make sure that Putin can't be successful. Um, Putin and others can't be successful in dividing us as a people. Um, and that would be many of those bills, quite frankly, that sit um, bipartisan bills that are sitting on the Hill waiting to be passed that aren't going to be passed because of the politics of this. Um, because the, 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 uh, the Senate majority leader is not letting them go forward because the president doesn't support them. Um, so we're not doing everything we need to do to defend ourselves. There's some things that other countries who have faced this kind of attack from the Russians have actually done successfully that we could learn from. So there's actually a Ukrainian... It's either a TV show or radio show where the Ukrainians once a week will tell their people, here are the messages that the Russians are sending into Ukraine. Here's what they want you to hear. 
Um, the French did that very effectively during, during the French elections, you'll remember. Um, we're not doing any of that. Um, so we could do a much better job actually defending ourselves, and we're not doing that. The other thing we need to do is we need to make the adversaries who are attacking us in this way pay a price, pay a cost. And the only thing we've done to date are targeted sanctions against specific organizations that have attacked us, you know, the Internet Research Agency in Russia, um, some specific Russian intelligence organization and some specific individuals. And I'll tell you that that has absolutely no effect on Putin. The people who get sanctioned, the organizations that get sanctions, wear, wear those sanctions as a badge of honor. I'm sure that Russian intelligence officers have, have actually gotten medals for what they did in 2016. The only way to deter Putin is to is to have broad sanctions that actually significantly hurt his economy and increase the risk to him that his middle class is going to come out into the streets and demand change. The kind of some of the, the, the protests we've seen recently. Um, we don't need to encourage those publicly, but we need to create economic pain um, that increases the chances of those people coming out into the street to make Putin think twice about doing what he's doing. And I would say to him in private, if I were the president, I'd say, we're going to keep these sanctions in place until you stop the attacks on us. You stop the attacks, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of the, the tough sanctions. We haven't done that either. So we have not done what we need to do to defend ourselves and to make the adversary pay a cost. And that is why, David, this is spreading now to other countries, because they see that they can get away with it. Well, in fact, the, 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 the upshot of our investigations into 2016 um, has essentially been to provide a blueprint for others that says, you can do this and this, you as a campaign can even encourage this behavior, uh, and you can avoid prosecution provided that you do it this way. Um, but, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the reality is that it's not just that we haven't done what you describe, uh, sensible measures to, to preclude this. Um, we've rewarded the Russians. Uh, this week there was a discussion about getting them into the G7, um, which, you know, uh, they had been... Um, uh, asked to leave, you know, following uh, the invasion of Crimea. Uh, getting out of the INF Treaty was something that they wanted uh, and they had been ignoring. In any event, um, uh, we've given them sort of free reign in Syria. We have defended them. The president has elevated Putin in, in, a, in a number of ways through his behavior. They, they attacked us, were defended by us, have been given free pass to do it again and have been rewarded by us. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's disturbing because it doesn't look to me like they will pay any real price for having done this. Am I overstating it? No, not at all. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's why, that's why I'm so worried about this. Um, if you're... If you're Vladimir Putin and you sit, you sit back and kind of assess um, what you did in 2016 and what you continue to do, 
um, you have to say to yourself, this has been, this has been a much bigger success than I could have ever, you know, imagined. Um, you know, maybe I didn't get rid of the sanctions that I was hoping for. You know, I was really hoping that President Trump would get rid of the sanctions that were put on after the invasion of Ukraine and the, the grabbing of Crimea. Maybe I didn't get that, but boy, did I get the political division in the United States that, that, you know, is, is that I could only dream about. And I get statements from an American president that I could only dream about. So I'm sure that he thinks, um, I, I could not have gotten any luckier here than, than I got in 2016. And since then, and people need, um, let, and, let me ask you one other question. I see we have about 10 minutes to go. Let me ask you one other question on this and shift the issue. I know you've done a bunch of work at what does the future of the intelligence community look like and I share an interest in this area particularly with regard to um, the the, the lack of high level um, understanding at the policy level in the US government of the implications of new technologies as they pertain to threats say cyber, um, uh, uh, or as they pertain to next generation warfare, whether it's AI or swarms or, 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 or uh, other kinds of activity uh, and so forth. I, you know, but we, I looked at top 20 schools of public affairs and international affairs in the U.S. None of them require anybody to take a technology course. And yet there's no area of national security or international relations that doesn't require for next generation leaders to to understand the nature of cyber offense and defense and how it's going to change the nature of AI and how it's going to affect that or how it could you know we, you know what what how could deep fakes affect things how could um, how could markets be shifted um, and disrupted by these things how could attacks evolve in the future et cetera et cetera you, it's a cascading set of issues. Um, I, from the point of view of the intelligence community, where there is actually within the NSA and other agencies some considerable know-how in this area, um, there's still a challenge of speaking to the policymaker. And I, I remember having a conversation with Mike Hayden at one point where he said that he used to go in and, and brief at a high level in the White House on some of these things. And he said, the people looked at me like I was Rain Man, you know, that he wasn't making any sense because they didn't understand the words that were coming out right. of his mouth. And so with a little bit of a further horizon, I'm wondering how you, how you assess that challenge. So I think, I think the technology challenge um, is the biggest challenge that we face on the national security front. Um, and I think about it largely from an intelligence perspective um, so let me talk about it from that way, and then I'll link it back to the policymaker. Um, technology is changing faster than it ever has before. You know, each five years, um, there's more change. So the next five years, there's going to be more change than the last five. It is changing extraordinarily rapidly. And that change has two fundamental effects on, on intelligence. One it makes the job of the intelligence community harder, right? So, so for example, biometrics 
um, facial recognition make it make it a lot harder for CIA operations officers to travel in alias, right? So it it complicates technology, complicates the way you do your work. Um, but at the same time, it creates opportunities. So all of this open source information that is out there has real intelligence nuggets in it. The question is how to find those nuggets, right? And sometimes there's more information available in open sources than there is from clandestine sources, right? So, so it creates both, both, both challenges and opportunities for the intelligence community. And then it has a huge effect on the adversary, right? It has a tendency to level the playing field. So there are dozens of countries today that have imagery satellites um, at their beck and call that they didn't have five years ago because because commercial commercial satellite imagery satellites are now so available and so cheap. So it levels the playing field and it makes our adversaries um, more more uh, capable um, and in some cases more aggressive. I mean, just think about what social media did to the Russians' ability to weaken us, right? So it, 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 it enhances the capabilities of the adversary in a fundamental way. Um, I'd say two more things. One is I don't think the intelligence community is where it needs to be with regard to this technology. I don't think they're on the cutting edge yet, and I don't think they figured out a way to stay on the cutting edge as technology changes rapidly. So that is, I think, the number one challenge facing the next DNI, is to figure out how to get to the cutting edge and stay there. And then the second, the second issue is, as you know, the intelligence community for years has had real expertise in issues like um, uh, nuclear programs of the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans and real expertise in the missile programs of all sorts of countries. So, you know, real expertise on that stuff, that's where it resided. And I don't think they have that today on issues like AI in China or quantum computing in China. Um, and they're going to have to build that expertise if we're going to be able to tell policymakers what they need to know about where Chinese capabilities are going in that regard. So that's, that's the intelligence community's problem. And then the other problem is once the intelligence community gets its act together, how do you communicate those things in a way to policymakers so that they understand it and they can act on it? And there needs to be a whole sort of policy apparatus that gets built and a policy capability that gets built that can react to what the intelligence community is saying to them about these issues so that they can make policy decisions that keep the country safe. So we've got, a, I think, a tremendous amount of work to be done in this area. And I don't, see any, I don't see anybody doing it right now on the policy side. I see some real efforts on the intelligence side, but they're just not bearing fruit as fast as it needs to be born. Yeah, I, I, on, on the policy side, I, you know, I, I despair of the fact that the next generation policymakers we're training are not actually being trained in, in, in the issues that are going to affect policy. They're not going to be fluent. They're not even going to have the vocabulary that they need to deal with this. And as you say, with regard to the intelligence community, if you were 
a rising policymaker in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you were trained in the vocabulary of nuclear weapons. You were trained in um, the nature of that technology. Um, and you, you, it was kind of gating issue. You couldn't get into the inner circle of the community unless you, you understood that. Now, all the next generation issues um, are, 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 are indecipherable to many of these people, and it's a real challenge. With the final two or three minutes, and of course this is a massive issue and we could go on and on, um, but I have a lot of respect for your time here. Um, you know, you, you, you are an expert in, in the, the war on terror. You wrote a great book on it um, a few years back called The Great War of Our Time, which I read and I, I thought it was terrific, as Thanks. did many others, since it was a, a bestseller. You were with George Bush all day on 9-11. There has been a kind of a a desire to get out of that part of the world and to suggest that we had won and, you know, declare victory and get out. It dates back to George Bush with Mission Accomplished. You know, uh, the Obama administration tried to do the same thing. Um, uh, Donald Trump has, you know, said, you know, we've defeated ISIS, although um, Jim Jeffries and others who work for him said no. Um, and now we're about to cut a deal with the Taliban and get out of Afghanistan, essentially handing, after almost 20 years, the keys of Afghanistan back to the people that we went in there to defeat. Now, staying in Afghanistan has a whole bunch of other issues associated with it. But it seems to me, if you look around the Middle East and you look at the conditions that create extremist um, movements, uh, and the conditions that encourage them, like failed or failing states, whether you're looking at Syria, you're looking at Yemen, you're looking at Afghanistan, you're looking at parts of Iraq, um, you're looking at Gaza, uh, you're looking at North Africa, um, there are more places for this to go. There are more uh, extremists out there than there were before. Uh, and I'm just wondering... You know, have we tried to turn the page too quickly in this? So it's a great question. Um, you know, the terrorist threat has certainly evolved since 9-11 from, you know, a direct a direct threat to the homeland by terrorists outside now to a more indirect threat um, of inspiring uh, lone wolves here in the United States to act. Um it could certainly evolve back um, if if we walk away from Afghanistan, um, if things don't go right in Iraq, if they don't go right in Syria, we could certainly evolve, evolve back towards a direct threat. Um, I I've said for a long time that that this that this extremist threat uh, is a generational issue. You know, I think my kids' generation and my grandkids' generation is still going to be fighting this fight. Um, I think there, there are two parts of the response. You know, one part is dealing with terrorists who've already been created to making sure that they don't attack you and kill you. Um, that takes intelligence, that takes military power, um, that takes allies, that takes leadership. Um, and so we, we, we need to continue to do that. You know, the most important lesson that I learned, David, um, in dealing with Al Qaeda all those years is that is that when you put pressure on them 
they degrade quickly, but when you take that pressure off, they resurge quickly. And that's what we're seeing in Iraq and Syria right now in the form of ISIS. And it's exactly what we'll see in Afghanistan um, if we withdraw from there. It's what we saw in Iraq when President Obama withdrew from Iraq. We saw al-Qaeda in Iraq rebound very quickly. Um, so that's the, that's the first half of it. And, and we know how to do that if we have the will to do it. The other piece, which we've never really gotten right, is how do you stop the production of terrorists in the first place? How do you stop them from being radicalized? And that's a very difficult issue. Um, it takes, it's something the United States cannot do alone. It takes a lot of countries doing the right thing. It, it requires changes within Islam. It requires changes to uh, the socioeconomic conditions in a lot of countries, changes to economic policies. Um, that is, that's the fundamental long-term issue. And we've never really gotten our arms around that. Um, and I'm not blaming anybody for that. I understand why they haven't. It's, it's difficult. And as long as the terrorists are trying to attack us, your focus is on stopping them. Um, but, but those are the two ways I think about it. And so one, on the one hand, got to keep the pressure on the guys who are trying to, to, to kill you. Um, and on the other hand, you've got to be pressing countries to make the right changes in their policies across a whole range of issues so that you don't create terrorists in the first place. So this, this, we're, we're going to be with us for a long, long time. And if we ignore it, if we ignore it, we're going to have another 9-11. An ominous warning, but one I think that uh, uh, the, the, most of the people I know who've been in this line of work for a long time agree with. Uh, Michael Morrell, I uh, wish we had more time. I've enjoyed this conversation very much, um, uh, daunting as some parts of it have been. Uh, perhaps you will join us again sometime. I'd be happy to. Uh, for, for those of you who are listening, um, I would encourage you to listen to Intelligence Matters, the podcast that, that Michael does, or follow things he writes in the Washington Post or on Axios. Uh, he's a really, really important and knowledgeable voice um, uh, at, at, at this juncture, and um, uh, and it's also a really good podcast. Don't stop listening to Deep State Radio. Don't stop <laughs> Absolutely. listening Listen to, to both. National Security Magazine. Add it to your mix. You know, it, it'll force you to work out a little bit extra, so you can listen to more podcasts. Uh, you'll be healthier and smarter. Um, thank you, Michael Morrell, and thank you to all of you for listening. David, thank you very much. It was great to be with you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.